in three words. The best stories. What are stories of the best things going on right now? The, the best, best stories are authentic. They are relevant. Thought-provoking. Emotional is probably the first one The best one stories are humorous. Shareable. They I think are emotional. entertaining. They're unique. I would and say relevant. inspiring. Honest. Real. Colorful. Stories that are and and they're emotional. Those are some of the best stories. Hello and welcome into another episode of Storyteller. We're coming to you from UFC Apex in beautiful, sunny Las Vegas. Super hot outside, but we're gonna keep it cool and conversational inside. My name is Sky Muller, and it is my pleasure to introduce you all to the SVP of Research and Development for UFC, Alone Cohen. Alone, welcome to Storyteller. Thank you very much, thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. So we always start with the same question, and UFC is so big on building the storyline for a fight, right? You gotta drive numbers. And so, in your opinion, the best stories are, and in three words, the best stories are. Uh, I think the best stories are specific. Uh, that's how I try to speak. You start to talk about platitudes and people just check out, right? I want to be a game changer is, you know, I've heard that a thousand times, but if you give me a specific example of how you moved a project forward from soup to nuts or fast or unexpectedly, like now I'm on board. Uh, I think the third one, the second one is that uh, the best kind of stories are personal, right? If I can talk to you about something that feels like it's in your life and you can relate to it, great. And I think the last one is obvious. The best stories are emotional, right? A story about how, I went and I got a great price on a vacuum cleaner is not that great, right? Like sure. this is why saving puppies it makes the news and saving on vacuum cleaners probably doesn't make the news. As Unless often. something crazy happened while you were at that vacuum cleaner shop. If it made you feel yeah, something. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. If you well, went and shopped for a vacuum and it made you feel something, that's news. That counts, that counts. You gotta be able to tell it though. So let's get personal then. For you, your backstory, um, I was you know, going through the resume a little bit and I saw, quite the jump. I saw a lone Cohen go from a lawyer who is defending depositions to somebody who is co-founding Fightmetric. Yeah. What, what went on there? <laughs> uh, so the short answer is a financial crisis happened. Uh, the long answer is uh, I am still a barred attorney uh, in uh, the Atlantic uh, seaboard, but I, I would argue today I probably practice more law than I did many times while I was actually a lawyer because when you're in uh, that situation and you're defending depositions, as you said, or doing document review. Oftentimes your document review at some point doesn't feel like you're practicing law and negotiating contracts and talking to people about business terms and things like that is very much legal work. And I think I do about as much of that today as I did ever before, but I've got this whole other job. 2008 rolls around. I'm working at a uh, white collar defense firm. They start just letting go of younger lawyers. I got my last paycheck and a congratulations on the birth of your daughter basket in the same week. No. And I, it's just like mechanical, right? They're like, oh, you had a child, here's a basket. And it just, it felt a little like, I don't know, out of touch. <laughs> uh, but at that moment, I had already been happy, uh, happily working with a friend of mine, Rami Ganauer, who had had this idea and he had started watching Tough One and was, had a banker's box full of paper that he had sat there and developed the earliest version of official statistics for the sport of mixed martial arts, specifically UFC. And he had a question at that point, you know, he was writing blogs. So he would take his analysis uh, out of these statistical sheets of paper, right? These long lists of tallies. And he would say, so-and-so uh, landed this many strikes last time. 
you know, on average over the last three fights, he's been moving up in the number amount of striking he's landing in each uh, fight, and therefore we expect even more striking in this fight or whatever that pattern was. And he's writing that in his blog, and all of a sudden he's watching a UFC pay-per-view, and out of the mouth of the commentator comes talking points lifted straight out of the blog. Now, to UFC's credit, Rami calls UFC, says, you guys are finding this useful, let's do business. And they said, great. And he comes to me and he said, how do I get this in a computer? Because I cannot do this on paper. It's not possible to pull all the sheets. There's no way to collate them. And I had started my life before I was an attorney working at what today would be called a big data company. We were doing exotic versions of database work at the time. There was no such thing as NoSQL yet. That was all just burgeoning tech. Uh, and so I knew something about databases. I helped him build the first database. I helped him get the data keyed in. And he came to me at that moment when I was looking for a job after the 2008-9 collapse and said, look, this might work. And my wife and I, with a newborn, looked at our budgets and said, we can make this work for six months. Made it work for six months, hadn't spent a dime out of our savings. And we had new clients coming in to fight metric. And a year later, we had a small salary. And two years later, we were doing live statistics. And five years later, we were working in six sports. And I think, what was it, eight years later, we had sold to the UFC. And here we are. What was the biggest learning part of that whole thing? Where, big oh, takeaway. It's impossible. It is impossible for me to digest for you what it means to go from a world where you don't know anything about starting a business to hiring your first hires and having some of that go right and some of that go wrong, to learning to become a manager, to learning how to win business, to build trust, to know when people are being honest with you, you know, and being good stewards, to knowing when you need to be aggressive. All of that stuff are, you know, that journey has been thing after thing after thing after thing, right? Today, if you ask me, what are you working on? I'm working on understanding how to do what I do inside of a larger organization and to do it the way I want to do it. I want to do business where I feel like what you see is what you get. I can just tell you honestly how I feel about something or what it is I'm looking to get from something. I don't have an ulterior motive. Uh, that's, a, that's as anybody who's worked in a large organization knows, like that can be difficult. There are politics and machinations. There are fewer of them here. And that's a wonderful thing. That's what makes UFC so great. But they're still learning for me to do coming from a small organization. What part does data play in storytelling on the broadcast? It, it plays multiple stories. So let's talk about the obvious one, right? If somebody, our job, we have a stats producer. We don't just put stats on screen. I think there are just sports where they're like, that run was 15 yards. And we want to know, right? I want to know that that run was 15 yards by so-and-so. Maybe if you want, if you're a fantasy player, you want to get the idea of like how many fantasy points that might be worth in your league. UFC isn't necessarily like that. We have, in some ways, too many data points, right? We're trapping upwards of 65 data points per fighter per fight, right? Per round, really. So you're looking at an enormous amount of data, a lot of which isn't relevant at the time, right? If I'm trapping specifically what kind of submission attempt you might, might attempt at this point, if you're not on the ground, that's not happening, right? So not all of them are relevant at any given moment, but we don't tell stories that way on the broadcast. We tell stories on the broadcast to really either cement for you how big a lead somebody has, for example, or we talk about making the invisible visible. And I think that that might be the best answer to your question. You may not be noticing this, or you may have forgotten because it happens four minutes ago, but the beginning of this round had an enormous amount of striking advantage for this person, and it has swapped towards the back of the round. Being able to tell those kinds of stories where the human eye isn't 
you know, or the human mind isn't set up to think that way. That's maybe the most powerful version of data storytelling. There is a secondary element, and I think it, you can unfold the onion here, peel the onion in a lot of ways. Uh, the other one is there are people who watch UFC with their friends at a bar. They're not going to be able to hear Daniel Cormier explaining a particular technique or you know, Michael Bisping talking through the way somebody is orchestrating this fight, but they are going to be able to see what they see on the screen and then my numbers. Right, mm -hmm. like that is going to be part of their experience of UFC, and so the ability to tell a story silently or in the background or as secondary visuals, I think that's all a part of it. And I think more and more, going back to your, mm -hmm. you know, some sports put it on screen every single yeah. play. I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of that. Where do you think that balance is, at least in, in how UFC is going to do, and in your opinion of where I can't even focus on what's happening on screen because it's a box around the screen of stats, tickers, and everything versus I've seen Apple TV go really minimalist of just mm -hmm. kind of popping up, you know, probabilities and things like that. So we are, I am now 13 years into a career in mixed martial arts statistics, right? A long time. And look at the screen right now. And if the answer to your question <laughs> is, wow, there really doesn't seem to be that much on there. It, that, it, that is a choice, mm -hmm. right? If the fight is amazing and all anybody wants to see is the fight, then let them watch the fight. Like, the worst thing you would want is something yipping at the corner, like, hey, hey, check this out. No, 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 like, watch the fight. If it's incredible, do that. We'll talk about the statistics later. We'll talk about what happened and how we got here. Some of the most amazing fights are something amazing happens. And, you know, let's give you this example. I, I, wouldn't, I won't be able to give you specific fighter names here, uh, but you'll watch a fight in which somebody is losing, mm -hmm. obviously, and they do something right at the end and they win. Well, you're like, that's a great comeback. However, if you can then cut to a screen that says, we did the statistical analysis, and a fighter who is in this position is 99.47% to win, and then the other guy comes back, that's a cooler comeback, right? And we had that when you look at baseball. Baseball had exactly. Pakoda. Yeah. So Pakoda would be like winning, 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 winning. Nope, nope. And in baseball, there isn't, I mean, you could in one inning like just rack up a whole right. bunch of hits and scores and, uh, and things like that. But in our sport, you can just be pummeling the crap out of somebody, and they flip you over, grab an arm the wrong way, you didn't notice, your weight's on the wrong thigh, and they crank, and that's it. And I think that that opportunity, a sport like this where it can be all over, and I think anybody's ever watched a heavyweight fight, right? One guy's doing great, and just catches one in the wrong moment, leans his head down, you know, hits him in the temple, and that's it. So those kind of moments are the most compelling, you can tell those kinds of stories in stats generally after the fact. Now, are there other stories to tell? We're working on them, mm -hmm. right? There are stories that we don't tell today. We've told in the past using motion data where people are spending time in the octagon. Mm -hmm. There are advanced statistics around that where you can talk about like someone circling away from you, you're advancing on them, they're not retreating as much, they're playing from the outside. We are gonna start to lean into those stories where they feel intuitive first and Will you get a chance to overlay stuff? Like if you went to go see MLB.tv, um, MLB right? They're the most data yeah. heavy, where today you could be watching video and you could be overlaying it with so many transparent windows you can't see the game. Uh, we're not headed there anytime soon, like super near term. But over time, as betting becomes more relevant, as prop betting becomes more of an issue, as you're trying to feed a model that you have in your Excel sheet to explain to you where there might be an edge against a like then I think those things become more relevant. In the meantime, I think 
data is an excellent way to feed into most fights. Something, again, you want to make the invisible visible. Mm -hmm. I think for the most spectacular moments, just step back and let people enjoy. And then come back to it later in, in the intersection of data and sports betting is when someone almost hit a big parlay and they had 97% odds of doing it and all of a sudden that changes. Where are we at with sports betting on the, the sports betting arc? It's like we've been talking about it for, I don't know, three, four years now and it feels yeah. like we're, the crescendo's you know, peaking a little bit. Uh, I don't disagree with you that we're on the way up. Yeah. I think there was a moment where sports betting became legal in the United States and everybody was like, every, your mom will be calling <laughs> you and being like, honey, we're in the middle of the fourth quarter and I need to know who's going to score next. Yes. And you're like yeah. going to be sitting. And, and that, I mean, if that has happened, it's happening in small enough numbers and small enough niches in America that it's not part of the national culture yet. And yet we all expect that that's where we're going. I think we're all, we all expect to get there faster. We just haven't yet. I think that's the reality. Uh, we are ready as a sport. I know that. We are managing all of our gaming data. So we are ready to step, or we are ready to confront court sighting, right? I have data feeds you can't beat. Uh, and then we are ready to do, and DraftKings, one of our sportsbook partners and others, already have relatively deep props. And we've done the sort of partnerships necessary to let people build complex betting uh, scenarios and price them. Ultimately, that's the big trick. Got to be able to price them. Uh, so those things exist. Now the question is when people come to the product. And I think that's going to be slow for now. And then, right, it's, uh, what was the old phrase? Little by little and then all at once? <laughs> yeah. I think we're little by little and then all at once. That's awesome. You've been at a lot of events, a lot of places around the world. When someone asks you about your job and, and maybe they you know they know it's it's an awesome job, have you had a, a good story or a good encounter with uh, somebody that when I ask that question, it's the first one that comes to mind? Man, uh, look, let let's just go with you guys, <laughs> right? We were very lucky to have the tag board team come join us out here and understand how we use the product. Uh, and you guys, I think, got what I would hope is emblematic of, uh, of an experience that when we have a partner, we aim to provide, right? So if, if you're a sponsor, if you're a vendor, uh, at least when I'm the person giving the tour, I want you to come here, see the event, experience it close up, understand the energy in the room, then be able to go backstage, see how we do what we do, see some of the preparations backstage, people warming up inside of dressing rooms on mats in the back, getting their hands wrapped, people walking back and forth down the back corridors, you know, social media folks, Dana swings by, all of that stuff that's happening backstage. I want them to have that experience. And I try to come at those experiences fresh every time because the blessing of having a good job is the curse of having a good job, right? You show up and I'm having a good time, always. But the first time you do it and the second time you do it and the 50th time you do it, they should feel different to any human but most people are coming backstage for their first time. And I want to make sure that when they do that their first time, it feels great, right? And the day I've said this, I think to you guys yeah. when you were here, if I'm doing this with somebody and that enthusiasm, that spark isn't there, I've done something, I've shortchanged them, right? Uh, and that's not fair to them. I think I had an experience recently, uh, one, uh, the partners we had, people occasionally bring generally grown kids, but kids, mm -hmm. uh, you know, teenagers, young adults, and they tend to have these moments. 
And you know that because they stop sort of looking blankly around and they don't say anything. They just look like very intently, right? So a Patty the Batty is walking by us backstage and the guy's son is like, you know, nudging that like, yeah, it's Patty, you know? And he gets over there and Patty's totally, totally bought in, right? Stops, like asks the kid his name, gets photo, brings people over, you know, couple mm -hmm. big punches and walks on. So first of all, good on Patty. Like yeah. really good on Patty. Second, that's you can't get that anywhere, right? And that kid is going to walk away and say that 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 was incredible, right? That was ungettable. I don't know how else I'm ever going to experience that kind of thing. And I think that, you know, those moments happen when we do it. Uh, I think I have a lot of those kinds of stories in different in different ways. And inevitably people walk away, I think, from a production like this, and I think you'd walk away from any major sport like this, you walk away and you're like, oh my God, it takes so much, right? Because you see an octagon, you see a few people on an octagon and a rep. Yeah. Like, oh my God, it takes so much to get these people here. Starting with their 24 fighters and they each have an entourage <laughs> of people who is a gym and the, yeah, all that stuff. I think it's so important to give people that behind the scenes. And then, it, I mean, you run into fighters, it's a little bit like Disneyland that way. You run into the mascots, <laughs> or, but they're, right. you know, real people in this case. Part of when, when our company was down here uh, that I took away was that uh, Alex from our company said, you're a big foodie. And so <laughs> a lot of people come to Vegas for conferences, UFC fights, whatever it may be, 21 runs. Um, Give us a few, give us, give the people a few suggestions. Where do you go when you have 250K, <laughs> yeah. like saran wrap to your body? Yes. Um, come when it's cooler. So, uh, look, there are, uh, Adina, who we talked to at some point earlier today when you guys were around. Uh, so she is also part of the food, like my understanding of the food scene here. There's a place here called Esther's Kitchen. Um, I think is excellent soft strip. It's in the arts district. I think there's a whole set of stuff over there that's fun. Uh, and worthwhile. I think uh, people will disagree with me. I've had fantastic meals. Uh, some of the most iconic chefs that have places on the strip, I think those places occasionally are about the name and not about the food, but we went to, um, it was Momofuku. And Momofuku uh, is very quiet, very dark in the back at Cosmopolitan. Uh, go for a late seating. We sat at the bar, started talking to the chefs back there. They're like, you know, handing you stuff that they're like, oh, somebody had one of these or we're experimenting with this and there are aiolis and, you know, gnocchi coming up on the bar and also truffle parmesans and extra shots of like unfiltered red <laughs> sake. And I mean, it was really, that's a great experience. And if, if you are used to that experience at a New York uh, or Los Angeles, or something food scene where you expect to interact with people and not just have this very manufactured experience that's available here now. I don't think it was for a long time. If you go to Cirque, it's gonna be Cirque every time, right? Like, <laughs> it is, it's, it's wonderful, but that's what you're going to get. And uh, I think the other one is uh, Jeff Hutcherson, who is a member of uh, the Global Partnerships team at UFC and is moving over actually to a sister company at PBR. He's gonna become the head graphic designer there. There are people here who just know where to go in all the little strip malls. So if you go outside of UFC down Rainbow Boulevard, you know, you'll see like Fut 79, Fut 44. So he's the person who has taken me to like a couple of little gems oh. and they are so good. And then I think the last one, totally unexpected. This one I actually got off of Eater or something. Yes. I think it was Eater. Um, I, I had my family here for the one time they've all been to Vegas and we went out to 
Uh, this is the thing I think people don't spend time doing in Vegas. They don't go out to Red Rocks, mm -hmm. which you should totally do. And they don't go out to the Valley of Fire. These places are 30 and 45 minutes away, and they are spectacular world-class nature preserves. Yeah. Like, you do not need to go to the Grand Canyon to have an amazing natural hiking experience. But on the way home, kids are hungry, so we stopped at a place called, I think it's called Old Style Pizzeria. And it is, to say it is in a strip mall is to, like, I mean, it is, like, next to a, a barber shop with blacked-out windows and, like, a auto lube place. It's like, here, walk inside, and it is, like, a legit, they make sourdough crusts, no. like, perfect hand-pulled basil. They made a, like, a smoked rosemary lemonade as their one beverage. It's, like, you never know. So I, all of the food scene that didn't exist when I started to go to Vegas here years ago, all of the buffets and all of that stuff, I, I think a lot of that fell away over time. They still exist, but it's not like the primary way to go. If you go into the Paris right now, you will not find a buffet right there mm. at all. Uh, if you go to the Wynn, uh, it's like the one buffet I point everybody to. Wynn's a vegan, so if, oh. if you aren't, if you're a meat eater, there's plenty. If you are not a meat eater, there's plenty. Uh, and you can watch them working in the pastry kitchen that's like right in the middle. It's amazing. So yes, anyways, I guess, a, I, I guess I am a foodie. And you can really eat everywhere and all over the strip. And I think fantastic. that qualifies. You gave people yeah. a lot of options. I, and we'll yeah. take some of those ourselves. I want to close with um, asking you about a company that you're actually on the board with. I support the girls. Sure. And it's a, a company, from my understanding, that provides bras, underwear, hygienic material to um, women who are experiencing homelessness. How did you get involved with that? I think it's an, a fascinating company, and, and how did you get involved? Sure. So I've been on the board with I Support the Girls for from the beginning. So Dana Marlowe is actually a neighbor of mine. So oh, wow. it's a geographic connection, and I love people who execute, right? If you come to me with a good idea, I'll tell you it's a great idea. But if you come to me and you're like, hey, I have a basement full of bras that people have donated, and it's full, and I need help figuring out how to transition into a warehouse and so on and so forth, now you have my attention. And Dana is that person, and Goosebumps, is, is that person in spades. I, to tell you that she has done a lot with a little, I can't even begin. She's been on, I think it's, she's been on Good Morning America, mm -hmm. and she's been on the local news, and she's uh, testified in front of the United Nations, and all of these kinds of things while we are running more and more and more product through the warehouse from donations that, I mean, I've driven, we have a van in uh, Maryland. It is wrapped. It says, yes, this van is full of tampons. It's pink and it's blue. And I do not know why or how the Maryland Department of Transportation gave us the license plate Vangina, but we have the license plate Vangina. And, uh, and I've driven that to and from the warehouse and we have filled that warehouse and we just signed on a second warehouse in Indianapolis. And I got involved because I watched what Dana was doing and we are... We are not a board to tell Dana how we feel about stuff. People are actively participating in building this organization. I think five years from now, it will be 10x what it is today. Uh, and it deserves to be. If you're a menstruator of any you know, race, creed, color, kind, I Support the Girls is for you, right? If you, This is not a political statement. If you're in transition for any reason, we've done things like uh, dash kits. Those are kits for people who are fleeing a relationship where they're like, look, I cannot, I cannot leave with clothing because they will know I am gone and then they will find me. And so dash kits are people will call us or friends of people will call us or organizations will call us and say, we need 10, 15, right, of these dash kits so that you get a pouch that has in it simple essentials of menstrual health, contraceptive health, 
sometimes just basic shampoos, toothbrushes, if we got those in, we hand those to you. If you're walking into a facility, you're walking into a friend's home, somebody hands it to you because you're in your car on the way out of, out of town, out of, you know, out of the state or whatever it is. So I know that that's a very sort of serious, morose topic, no, it's... And, and it's important. Obviously, I support the girls is top of mind for a lot of people at the moment in this current political climate. Um, I, this is like when you talk to doctors who work on infectious disease and they're like, put me out of a job. Like, yeah. put us out of a job. And until then, uh, they're gonna keep at this. And it's unfortunately a growing enterprise because the need is sufficiently high that uh, we're gonna keep needing to do this. That's okay. The, we are two, offices, two main offices, one in DC and one in Indianapolis. We have affiliates in metropolitan areas across the country in, I believe, all 50 states. And of course, it, you're not a statewide rep because yeah. people have to come to your house and donate. So there, I see probably somewhere between 15 and 20 tons of stuff comes through the Maryland warehouse. Wow. Remember, these are like tampons. They're yeah. not heavy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, I've, I have handled enough of them that they do get heavy. Yeah. Um, but uh, most of the actual throughput of the organization is people working through our affiliates in all of these places. So think about all the stuff we never see that just goes from, I live in a suburb of Santa Fe, and it goes from that suburb of Santa Fe into somebody else's you know, room in Santa Fe who needs it. And that's the power of the org. So if I'm in Seattle, how do I, how do I get? Sure, so Seattle, I'm pretty sure we have an affiliate in Seattle, I'm yeah. nearly certain. I looked it up, you do. There you go. <laughs> so uh, you contact our affiliate in Seattle and you can go make a donation directly to that person. They have connections to organizations in your state that will take product from them on a regular basis. If people contact that affiliate directly as a you know, human being who needs help, they will do that work as well. And that is your best, right? That's your lowest carbon footprint, most direct way of contributing, and most people do it that way. I encourage people to do it that way. The, uh, the national, right? We'll take donations to national. That uh, focuses on us getting, maybe for, I'll give you an example, we will do a, a uh, deal with someone who is a producer, like a Lola. So Lola's been a tampon manufacturer who we've done business with because they will send us product. So we will need to rent a truck to go get that product or rent a truck Damn. to get it to somewhere else, pallets and pallets of yeah. stuff, right? That's the kind of stuff that goes through national and that's what you're supporting, right? It's our ability to, to, to take your money and make it a force multiplier. Yeah. Uh, what we don't do is we generally don't buy product and donate it to people. That's not what we're doing. Your, your dollar is the shipping dollar or the transport dollar. Um, but yeah, you go to your direct affiliate. National, we're happy to take it. We're happy to get people involved. We're certainly happy to take more affiliates, right? There are 50 states, but there are 300 major cities in America and then, of course, areas in between. So wow. all that's... That's powerful stuff. When you're doing stuff that powerful... Your license plate can say whatever whatever it wants. <laughs> well, Alone, thank you very much. I'm pretty sure his license plate says Mr. Data. So appreciate you uh, jumping on Storyteller and, and sharing some things with us. Thank you. You guys, you build a great product and we're glad to use it. Right on.